So we're at the second of five occasions where Paul defends himself. Uh, While I've been very blessed by this last portion of Acts, uh, I've also been somewhat stumped uh, by chapters 21 to 28. It's not so much the details, but kind of the overall purpose uh, that's more difficult to discern. Paul's Roman custody and these five defense episodes happen uh, within a time period of about two and a half years. But roughly speaking, they get the same attention by word count as Paul's three missionary journeys combined, which cover more than a decade, cover way more territory, and involve way more people. So why is that? I don't know fully. Uh, But a few things have begun standing out. One is that Luke wants to vindicate Paul before Roman authorities. And that's where Paul ends up in Acts 28 in Rome. And while Paul ministers in Rome, any Roman authority, perhaps the most excellent Theophilus, could pick up Luke's testimony here, and he could read Acts and see that Christianity was no direct threat to Rome. And it was actually right to let Christians continue preaching the gospel without government intrusion. In the process, though, Luke also does something much greater. He sets Paul's ministry within the broader story of of God's saving work. And he, he writes not just to vindicate Paul, but to exalt the risen Lord Jesus. Therefore, Luke begins with a gospel first, and he tethers the events of Christ's life, death, and resurrection with the Old Testament. What God promised, Jesus fulfills in his life, death, and resurrection. And then Luke continues with Acts to show the risen Jesus continuing God's work in and through his apostles and church. So it's not so much about what Paul's up to, most excellent Theophilus, but what the risen Lord Jesus is up to and whether your life squares with his kingdom. But something else is this. Luke's gospel also focuses on five trials at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus stands before Annas, the Sanhedrin, uh, and then King Herod, and then Pilate twice. So twice before the Jews, three times before Rome. And likewise, Paul stands before the Jewish crowd, the Sanhedrin, Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. So could it be that Paul's sufferings uh, here in Acts before the Jews and then Rome parallel Jesus' sufferings? That's not to say Paul's sufferings were redemptive like Jesus's. Sufferings, but, but could it be that the Spirit, working through Luke, writes in such a manner that we make this connection? That those who follow Jesus, their lives will end up imaging Jesus. And in that sense, Luke also presents Paul as an example for us to imitate. As we'll see today, Paul's example wasn't always perfect. 
Nevertheless, Luke's account of Paul's next defense reveals three crucial truths for our discipleship. Richard Wormbrand once said, The role of preparation for suffering must start now. It's too difficult to prepare yourself for suffering when the communists put you in prison. And to that end of preparing you, let's, let's look at three crucial truths for our discipleship, our preparation for suffering. Paul's last defense sent the Jews into a frenzy. To maintain peace, Roman officials intervene, and then Paul utilizes his rights as a Roman citizen to escape a flogging. And still, the tribune doesn't know what's going on. And that's where we pick it up in verse 30. He says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Notice Paul's primary concern. It's not with what these Jewish leaders think of him. It's what God thinks of him. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience. Since Paul met the risen Christ, if if Paul honestly assesses his his life before God up, up to this point... He has a good conscience. That doesn't mean his conscience is the ultimate judge. We know from 1 Corinthians 4 that, uh, that God's verdict matters most. But, but in terms of his own awareness of, of what God requires of him as in this new role as an apostle, he's innocent. None, none of their charges that they throw at him are going to stick. Well, the high priest doesn't like that. He orders... Paul to be struck, and and Paul then issues this prophetic rebuke. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Growing up, I'd I'd help my granny repair boards on her house. And I'd always laugh when I'd run across a board uh, that looked fine on the outside, but when you gave it a little tap, your hammer just went right through it. There's years of white paint and caulk (laughs) over these holes, right? Well, the idea is that these leaders pretend on the outside to uphold God's law, but inside they're rotten to the core. Ezekiel and Jesus use this imagery. In Ezekiel 13.10, he rebukes false prophets who speak peace, peace, when there is no peace. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the the, the Pharisees who, who appear righteous, but inwardly were hypocrites and lawless. Well, Paul aims that same language at the high priest... 
Ananias' lawlessness is evident in that he sits to judge Paul according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, he orders Paul to be struck. Paul likely has something like Leviticus 19.15 in mind, where we see the law teaching this, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Oh, how we need those words today. You shall do no injustice in your courts. You shall not be partial. That's not Ananias. Ananias judges Paul before listening to the evidence. He's more interested in power than truth. He's more interested in his agenda than justice. And Paul calls him on it. The question, of course, is whether Paul should have spoken that way to the high priest. Sure, he deserved every bit of it. But was it right to revile someone holding that particular office? Well, some of them object that Paul is out of line. And then Paul himself tries to recover lost ground. He says he acted in ignorance, right? I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So you get the impression that while the rebuke was warranted, he wouldn't have done so against Ananias, at least in that way, had he known he was the high priest. Why is that? Because the law teaches not to speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul wants to conform his life to God's word. Not everybody reads it that way. There's another take on this passage. It dates back to Augustine. Um, Some don't take Paul's words at face value. They say there's no way. There's no way that Paul was ignorant here uh, of who the high priest was. He had to have known who the high priest was. Therefore, we must read this as a profound use of sarcasm while honoring the spirit of the law. So when Paul says, I didn't know he was a high priest, for it's written, the sense would go something like this. Oh, he is, is he? By the way he's acting, it's awfully hard for me to tell. I thought high priests usually treat people with justice according to the law, right? Since he's not acting that way, it was hard for me to tell. Otherwise, I'd be glad to honor him, as the law says. That's a viable reading. And if you take it that way, you'll likely end up using it to justify how prophetic rebukes are necessary when religious leaders abandon justice in the name of God. But I don't think we have to read such irony into Paul's words. Because the irony is already present in Luke's words. And it stands out far more sharply when we take Paul's words at face value. That is, somehow he was truly ignorant. He's been away for years. And had Paul known Ananias was the high priest, he wouldn't have spoken that way. Why? Because he seeks to honor the law. Luke is intentionally setting Paul's example of honoring the law beside the Jewish leaders who disregard the law. Think about it. When Paul brings up God's law, the Jewish leaders deflect. 
You want to revile the high priest that way? When they bring up God's law, Paul humbles himself before it. And so we as readers are sitting here and we say, who's the hypocrite? Who's the unjust? Right? Anybody reading Acts will conclude it's the council. They're the hypocrites and they're being unjust. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day of mob politics. A day when authorities are hungrier for power than they are truth. A day when leaders pursue popularity rather than justice. It's a day of pragmatism that will abandon principled reasoning and sound moral judgment as long as it means silencing Christianity and silencing the truth. And when we face such opposition to the gospel, it's easy to feel entitled to respond with the same power plays and the same rhetoric that resemble the way the opposition acts. But that shouldn't be. Our first priority before enemies of the gospel must be faithfulness to God's word. And Paul so esteemed God's word that he was even willing to humble himself before that word when his enemies pointed it out. And likewise, we must humbly submit to God's word in all circumstances. How does God's word teach me to respond to this injustice? How does God's word teach me to speak when opponents hate? How does God's word teach me to image Jesus when trials come? How does God's word teach me to honor the emperor and to respect authority and to bless when reviled and not curse? To return good for evil. To not bear false witness on your Facebook wall. To patiently endure evil and not become quarrelsome. How is the word of God so saturating your life that you are responding to it humbly in the face of opposition? Is the word so much a part of you that such a text like Paul uh, Paul brings up from the Old Testament would just spring to your mind? And not just spring to your mind before a, a ruler like Ananias, but you'd humbly submit to, submit to it before him. The word must saturate us and guide our actions. It's, it's hard to be faithful when you're itching for revenge. So live your life before God in all good conscience and trust that he will use your faithfulness to his word to expose the enemy's hypocrisy. You be faithful to God's word and you leave the results to God. When you're faithful to his word in trial, your life will teach the world that Jesus is Lord and not your inner passions. And that his law is supreme and not you. Truth number two. Rather than hindering the gospel... Persecution gives opportunity to center, or in this case, recenter people's focus on the gospel. Rather than hindering the gospel, persecution gives opportunity to center people's focus on the gospel. Paul's arrest and trial are no accidents. Uh, Jesus warned, they'll deliver you up to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is no accident that Paul is here. And Paul counts it as another opportunity to bear witness, right? And he tries to do just that. Uh, Verse 6. 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now the tribune has already witnessed how Paul upheld the law. But it's still unclear why Paul offends them so much. And so Paul clarifies that. They hate him not for moral or social or political reasons. They hate him for theological reasons. Paul knows he shares common ground with the Pharisees. That's how Paul grew up. And so he attempts to to win their ear. And he also knows the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? They didn't didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection. But they did believe in the general resurrection of all people at the end of history. We can think of texts like Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Paul knows this about the Pharisees, and he uses it to build an inroad to the gospel. That's his intent, and we know that's his intent because Paul will later look back on this trial... Uh, in chapter 26, verses 6 to 8, and there he, re- he reiterates why he was on trial. I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then, though, he goes on in chapter 26 to say... Uh, In verses 22 to 23, he says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's how he planned for the general resurrection to become an inroad to Christ's resurrection. Okay, basically he's saying, hey, he's saying to these, to these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, he's kind of drawing in the, the, the Pharisees, and he's saying, hey, many of you accept the resurrection of the dead. I do too, only here's the kicker. I used to have an uncle. He had a, was a great storyteller at the table. And he, at the climax, he would always say, and here's the kicker, right? Here's the kicker. Jesus was the first The first to rise from the dead. And that's where Paul's heading. This is what the Bible usually means when it says that God raised Jesus from the dead. right? Meaning from all the dead ones. It's not just saying Jesus rose from death, but that he also beat everybody else out of the grave. So he's the firstborn. He's the firstfruits. And therein lies our hope of a future resurrection to life, if we believe in him, and not to contempt 
And that's where he wants to go. He wants them to see how preaching the resurrected Jesus isn't contrary to the hopes of Israel. It is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Right? He's trying to draw them in. But apparently, he doesn't get to say much more than, I'm on trial with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And then Pharisees and Sadducees start debating each other, and all chaos breaks loose. Nevertheless, what do we as readers learn from this situation? Well, we find that Paul wasn't really doing anything against Rome. Paul wasn't leading the Jews to revolt, as they will accuse, have they already accused him of and, and will accuse him of again. Paul wasn't the cause of their fanaticism. Right? Even they can't get it together themselves. Uh, the Pharisees even begin to say, we find nothing wrong in this man. Which means the real reason they all hate Paul must be something else. The real reason they all hate Paul is that he preaches the crucified and now risen Lord Jesus. Right? These otherwise theological enemies become friends against Paul and anybody else who preaches Jesus. That's the point. And that's what Luke means to show anybody reading the book of Acts. Paul has recentered the conversation around the good news that God will fulfill his people's hope in Christ and raise them from the dead. That's why they hate him. That's why enemies become friends against Paul. He preaches the gospel. And again and again, the apostles return to resurrection hope in their preaching. Resurrection is a fundamental truth without which there is no good news. But with the resurrection, there mean, there's, there, there's much good news. It means Jesus' death truly forgives sins. It means the risen Christ is taking everything to the judgment in the new creation. Our enemies will be held accountable and judged for their hypocrisy and injustice. But for those united to Christ, for those who believe in Him, for those who had their sins washed away and judged in the person of Christ, He will raise us to reign with Him forever. And that's the message that sets people free. That's the message our enemies need to hear. Opposition shouldn't mean we close up and we keep quiet about the gospel. Just the opposite, as we see here in Paul. Opposition gives opportunity to recenter everyone's attention on the main offense, which is Christ and Him crucified and risen. People are going to be offended when we uphold, as Christians, certain moral norms which are founded in God's Word. Whether that's what marriage looks like, what true sexuality looks like, what gender is, whatever it might be, that we are, those, those moral norms that we're holding up in society, they are going to become offensive to people. When we uphold justice in society, that's going to be offensive to people. But the point here that we're seeing in Paul is when that offense comes, we're drawing the lines back to Jesus' resurrection we're drawing the lines back to Jesus' cross. And we're centering everything upon Him and what He has done. 
So when given the opportunity, when these offenses rise because of our lives, we need to recenter people's focus on the good news and show how all these things are flowing out of it. So find common ground that you share with others. Here Paul's drawing in the Pharisees, right? Build inroads to the gospel. Hey, you general resurrection? Good, let's go there. I'm going to Christ next. And so that you can share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. Truth number three. Take courage. The risen Lord Jesus stands by us. And enemies of the gospel can do nothing without his permission. Take courage. The risen Lord Jesus stands by us and the enemies of the gospel can do nothing without his permission. As Christians, one of the most remarkable promises we have comes from Jesus at the end of Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And and the reason the promise is so remarkable is because what Jesus said just before that. I have authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's that risen Lord Jesus who will be with you always. And Paul faces these extremely difficult circumstances. He's beaten, he's arrested, he's misunderstood, he's nearly flogged, he's taken to the barracks over here, he's brought before the council of here, taken back to the barracks, barracks over here, right? He's been smacked in the mouth, misjudged, nearly torn in two. How did Paul keep going? Not because he was a tough guy. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.8 that he was once so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. So what gave Paul the courage to keep going? And what is going to give you the courage to keep going? It's that Jesus is going to make good on His promise. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. And we see that here when He says He stood by Paul. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul. And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Right, this is, um, you see this several times in Acts, but one, one very pointed one is like when Stephen is in the midst of getting stoned and he looks into heaven and he sees the risen Lord Jesus, right? Seated at the right hand of glory. Meaning, Jesus is with him in the midst of being stoned, right? And we're getting the same kind of picture here with Jesus being with Paul and standing beside Paul. And I think we should take a couple things away from that. One is that our Lord Jesus stands by us, beloved. We may not receive a vision like Paul received in Acts 18, verse 9. We may not have... The risen Jesus standing beside us, giving uh, us a word like Paul hears here in verse 11. But the Lord has taught and has promised us in written revelation that he will stand by us. And Paul's life is yet another confirmation that Christ stands behind his beloved. It's another confirmation that Jesus is alive and actively present with His people, giving them the courage they, needed, they need in trial. 
So I think we should read this and be reassured that whatever you walk through in the path of obedience, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how lonely it gets, no matter how painful it gets, the risen Lord Jesus will stand by you. The other way, the other takeaway is this. If Jesus wants you to deliver the gospel to someone, your enemies can do nothing to hinder that from happening without Jesus' permission. The next part, and, and really the next four chapters, prove that. If the risen Jesus says, you're going to testify in Rome, nothing's going to stand in his way. Nothing's going to stop that from happening. Not even 40 men who make it their aim in life to kill you. Look, Look at the conspiracy that's hatched in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. They were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. So that's the conspiracy. Over 40 men conspiring to kill Paul, only they don't see who's really in charge, do they? Right? If if Jesus said Paul will go to Rome, he's going to get Paul to Rome. One step in that process is using Paul's nephew to expose this conspiracy and then using a self-serving Roman official to frustrate the conspiracy. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for them, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him tell no one, that you have informed me of these things. Mike, what are the odds? Paul's nephew just happened to be there? The centurion just happens to obey a prisoner? The tribune just happens to grant some random boy this privilege and believes him? Proverbs 21.1 comes to mind. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 
200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third, at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is like overkill here. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias. Oh, we finally found out the tribune's name. Claudius Lysias, to, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Notice how he spins that. That's not exactly what happened. Right? He didn't, like, oh, Paul's a Roman citizen. I will come to your rescue. You know, in the middle. No, he had Paul strapped down ready to flog Paul before he found out he was a Roman citizen. Right? But here he's kind of spinning everything to make himself look good in the eyes of the excellent Felix, right? So you got this self-serving Roman official and Jesus is using him to accomplish his will. And he carries on in verse 29. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded In Herod's praetorium. He's being guarded now too. 200 men getting him out of there. Now he's being guarded. Now those involved in Paul's escape don't know it. But this is leg one in Paul's journey to Rome. Just as the risen Lord Jesus promised. The story uh, of of this event here. It's meant to be read in light of verse 11. Right? Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then this story falls right after that to say, and nobody will stand in the way of the risen Lord Jesus. So take courage in that, beloved. I've mentioned him before, but there's a man named uh, Yosef's son, and he's an evangelist. And he also pastored in, in communist Romania in the 80s. He leads a missionary organization. Um, but he suffered a great deal for his faith, being interrogated by, by the communists in, in Romania during the 80s. Uh, he once, I once listened to one of his conference messages, and he encouraged an audience to, to make the sovereignty of God the first pillar in your theology. And then he tells a story about about how this robust vision of God's sovereignty helped him through suffering. Uh, So at one point in his ministry, the authorities decided to put him on trial for preaching the gospel. 
in Romania. And before the trial, is, 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 it comes the, the, uh, a point where he has to give a statement to the police. And so he says, imagine uh, a long table with six senior officers uh, and, and then the prosecutor. And the colonel gets up to deliver the indictment against him. And, and, and then he proceeds with this long speech about how grave his actions were. And then to his amazement, the colonel says, you know, after all, isn't it written in Romans 13 that we are of God and you challenge us? And Pastor Sons then says, sir, will you let me explain how I understand Romans 13 in this situation? And he says, okay. Sir, Yes, you are God's instruments. No doubt about that. But what happens here is not between you and me. What happens here is between my God and myself. God has some dealings with me here. I don't know what. Maybe he wants to teach me a few lessons. But sir, you will not do to me anything but what God decided you to do. Because you are only my God's instruments. And then he says, you know, he didn't like that interpretation. <laughs> but then he asks the, congreg- the, the, the audience, he says, if all of your enemies are God's instruments, why are you so afraid? Enemies of the gospel can do nothing to thwart the gospel from advancing wherever Jesus wants it to go. He may use all kinds of surprising means to get the gospel where he wants it to go, but nothing will stop him from getting it there. He works everything to finish the work of flooding the earth with a knowledge of his glory. And therefore, be bold in your witness, brothers and sisters. Be bold because Jesus controls all things and is sovereign over all things and your enemies are not in control and be bold because Jesus cares for you and will stand by you. So on that note, let's take the supper he's given us uh, together. Wes, you want to come with us? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.